Heard the call to build your small business? Make it happen with a .NET domain name, the place for dreamers for 30 years and counting. Visit keepdreamingup.net for tips and advice. Whether you're just getting started or looking to grow, that's keepdreamingup.net. Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Pistons. I am your host, Matt Shook, and here is the episode for Wednesday, October 25th, a day that the Pistons will be back in action tonight at home at Little Caesars Arena against the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a 7 o'clock Eastern start on Fox Sports Detroit. The Pistons are 1.5 point underdogs despite being at home and you figure that Vegas gives about three points for the home teams. So that's saying that on a neutral court, Vegas sees Minnesota as about a four and a half point team, four and a half points better than Detroit. Something to keep in mind as the season kind of gets going. Some good news for the Pistons could be bad news for the Timberwolves tonight as Jimmy Butler may not play. And this is the, the latest news as of late Tuesday night. He did not play on Tuesday night as the Timberwolves played at home in a big loss to Indiana, then uh, this, so tonight's game, Wednesday, will be the second night of a back-to-back, so it looks like Minnesota will be getting into Detroit late on Tuesday night. They're also 2-2 two and two so far this year, and Tom Thibodeau apparently did not sound very optimistic that Butler would be back in the lineup on Wednesday night in Detroit as he's dealing with an upper respiratory infection and wasn't even in the building as the Timberwolves took on the Pacers. So, But still, obviously, Timberwolves are a building young team that figures to be a playoff team with the addition of Butler this offseason. they got Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins as a couple of real nice players. Shabazz Muhammad subbed into the starting lineup for Jimmy Butler on Tuesday night and had a pretty good game. So some decent players to look out for for the Pistons as they try to get back on track after Monday night's loss to the Philadelphia 76ers. The Pistons, after Wednesday night's game, will hit the road going on the West Coast Late Saturday night, they're going to be playing at Staples Center against the Clippers. And then on Sunday night, and a kind of a matinee type of thing with an 8.30 Eastern start. And, uh, you know, earlier in the afternoon out west, the Pistons will be playing the uh, defending champion Golden State Warriors. Of course, the presumed favorites in the NBA to win the title again this year. And then back to L.A. on Tuesday night to be at Staples Center again to take on Lonzo Ball and the Los Angeles Lakers. And the, uh, the good news is after that, the Pistons will be coming home for a five-game homestand with some pretty winnable games with Milwaukee, Sacramento, Indiana, Atlanta, and Miami coming in town. So if the Pistons do fall behind below 500 these next week or so after the West Coast trip, then they'll have a chance to jump right back into the win column with some of those games that they should be favorites in. So we got a big podcast today. Again, I was in the Motor City over the weekend and saw the practice facility unveiling. I have some thoughts about the good and the bad about the practice facility. And of course, some overall thoughts on Little Caesars Arena. That was the first time for Monday night's game that I've been at the new facility right downtown on Woodward. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the attendance. It's the the big hot story so far for the Pistons the beginning of the year is why nobody has shown up to any of these games. So we're going to talk about why it has been as bad as it is, some theories and some reasoning for that, and I have some criticism and maybe kind of an idea for what the Pistons can do, a criticism of the overall marketing strategy 
of the Pistons and maybe an idea of what they can do to help boost some of the excitement around the team. It's not going to make a big difference. The winning is going to be the number one thing, obviously, but just something to stir up some good thoughts and feelings of some of the fans or would-be fans here in the Detroit area. Yes, sir! So because of the rain, they covered up a nice area of the parking lot there at the Henry Ford Detroit Pistons Performance Center site at the new center area in Detroit on Monday afternoon and had a little party for the groundbreaking of the facility. It's interesting location as it's, first of all, right across the street from the Henry Ford Health System headquarters, so it makes sense that it would be there. But the, the Little Caesars Arena project is kind of the the impetus which connects the downtown development to the midtown development as you go north there on Woodward. So it's interesting that as you continue going north, you get to the new center area there. So maybe this could these kind of things that are going on on the corridor could all kind of connect and be the beginning of kind of the development of that area between midtown and new center area. So as you look at these you know, sporting complexes as you go up Woodward there, starting with, you know, Comerica Park and Ford Field uh, right downtown. And then as you kind of go up Woodward, you get to the Little Caesars Arena, you get to the Wayne State Campus, you keep going to the new center area there up Woodward. So it's interesting as you could make that drive up the, uh, you know, the sports landscape of downtown Detroit. The, the facility is going to be about exactly two miles away from Little Caesars Arena. So it's not right next to the stadium, as I kind of thought it was from some preliminary media reports and scanning Twitter and whatnot. But it's interesting, is if you can connect that corridor there, and then as you go west, you got Corktown, and then as you go east of downtown, you got the Greektown area and then Eastern Market. If you could get all those places kind of connected to a kind of a solid footprint of developed land downtown, then maybe you're talking about, you know, a really kind of a big area of, um, Detroit there, kind of the new Detroit 2000 in, in some ways. And, of course, the District Detroit, which we've talked about plenty, which Little Caesars Arena is the anchor of, that will kind of be a main artery that connects all those areas. It would be kind of really the center of those things, even though obviously downtown is the, you know, the, 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 the center of the economic part of the area. So the, the main... Uh, interesting part of the speakers. They had a bunch of speakers up there. The most interesting one, well, Mayor Mike Duggan was there, but I thought the most interesting one from a Pistons perspective was Aaron Tellum, the vice chairman of Tom, owner Tom Gores' Piston Group. And we'll talk about Aaron Tellum quite a bit on this podcast as he's an important person to know who he is and what he's up to as he will be shaping the future of the Detroit Pistons in a major way going forward. If you're a Pistons fan, you're probably already familiar, or an NBA fan, you're familiar with who Arn Tellum is. He was a, he's a Philly guy, and he was a University of Michigan Law School grad and became kind of a super agent through baseball and ba- basketball circles. He, became, uh, he, he started his own agency, got bought by another super agency, and bought by another super agency, and at the end of his agent sports agent tenure, he became the vice president of Casey Wasser, Wasserman's media group over in Los Angeles. Casey Wasserman being the major guy who brought the Olympics to Los Angeles in the coming years. Arn Tellum on his roster when he had his own group had Tracy McGrady in his prime, Jermaine O'Neal, Paul Gasol when he was still one of the top players in the NBA. He had Reggie Miller at one time. He had Russell Westbrook and Derrick Rose and Anthony Davis when they came into the league. So he was kind of a super agent, was always at the top of those most influential sporting figures lists from an agent perspective. And he dropped all of that in 2005 
and I can imagine that him and Tom Gores know each other from Los Angeles circles, and when Tom bought the team from the Davidsons, uh, Arn Tellum was quickly brought on, and the way that Arn talked about the, uh, the, his move to the Detroit Pistons franchise is he says on Monday that it's been the most rewarding two years of his professional life, and it probably hasn't been the most rewarding financially as breaking in those contracts that he was working as an agent has been um, you know, very lucrative for him over the years. But for him to kind of be working with the people in the city of Detroit, I think that's probably what he was getting at. But again, I'm going to be chasing Arn Tellum through the Pistons this year to try to get him on the podcast because I think he's kind of the more most fascinating player, so to speak, in the Pistons organization as far as where they're going and where they're at. And he's a guy who can kind of give some perspective from an NBA-wide reach as far as where this franchise is going in the future. He During his speech, he talked about how General Motors brought their headquarters to the new center area in the 1920s when everything was booming in Detroit. And they talked about how the, the officials for GM talked about how the downtown would continue expanding north up that corridor that way. Then, of course, in the, the Great Depression comes in the 30s. The World War II comes later on. And then when they get to the 1960s, you know about the riots and all the problems that Detroit has had since that time up until this very day. So maybe that some of this development that's going on in the revamped version of during Detroit's renaissance that's going on right now, maybe this is another chance to kind of build from, you know, all the way there from the Detroit River up to, uh, to down Woodward and see if you can get that kind of to be a strong artery for the city as, uh, you know, things hopefully expand in the neighborhoods as they go forward. So again, Arn's kind of Tom Gores' consigliere with uh, the Pistons, kind of his right-hand man, and he's dealing with a lot of the relationships, wide-ranging business relationships, partnerships with uh, you know people in the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan, politicians. He was obviously very close with Mike Duggan during the um, unveiling of this, uh, the groundbreaking of the practice facility. So he's a connected guy. He uh, is going to be someone, like I said, who's, who's very important to this franchise going forward. He said something interesting that he was told as he was uh, researching and, and getting to know people and talking to people throughout the city. And someone told him that you can't save Detroit, you have to be Detroit. And he used that as kind of a quote to end on as far as the Pistons and their you know, emotional and financial investment in the city of Detroit as they came back. So they're going to have... The 175,000 square feet of feet of basketball facilities down there. The team headquarters and all their offices are going to be in that facility as well. As the, right now, they're still up in the palace. They're still up at the Auburn Hills. The team's practicing in the same facility that they did when the team was playing games at the palace. So it's kind of a little disjointed couple of years that the organization is having right now. But they're going to be practicing, and the headquarters are going to be in that same area. And they talked about some of the health care aspects of the facility being used by the public. They didn't really give a lot of details about how that would come to fruition, but talked about how the public will be involved in the facility in some ways, and you can envision Pistons having camps and stuff like that there. Other dignitaries there included the Wayne County Executive, a Detroit City Council member as well, and all the dignitaries from the Henry Ford Health System were there. Uh, the schedule for the facility to open is not next summer, but the summer after that. So the summer of 2019. So we got two full seasons of the Pistons practicing and having their team headquarters up in Oakland County still. So a nice day, a lot of good feelings, a lot of good speeches about the Pistons and the city of Detroit. And I'm sure everyone left there with a pretty good feeling of what went on on Monday afternoon. (laughs) 
But moving on to some of the bad news and bad feelings about the continued development for the Pistons in downtown Detroit, Lindsey Van Hewley of Cranes Detroit reported on Tuesday that Lansing legislators finally approved a $16 million tax incentive for the project of the practice facility, which has ballooned in cost over time as well. On Tuesday, an attorney for the Pistons told Cranes Detroit that the project is now a $107 million project instead of the originally announced $65 million price tag that was announced back in February. The tax incentive that Lansing is giving, it's, it's kind of a, it's a, they're going to be paying back the Pistons after the project is over, and it's a brownfield development incentive, which means the state is kicking in money so that the contaminated land that the practice facility is going to be built on can be properly dealt with before construction takes place. But of course, any kind of public money going into the project brings to mind that it's just you know more public money going into professional sports facilities including ones that the Pistons are playing in, especially with the on the heels of taxpayers helping the Illich family foot the bill for Little Caesars Arena of, to the tune of $324 million for that arena, according to a study released by the Detroit City Council. The whole uh, LCA project is estimated now to cost, the, the arena project is estimated to cost about $863 million, so that $324 million of public money is about 38% of the whole project. But what an arena it is. There's all sorts of eateries and places to congregate. There's open space on the concourse. You don't feel like you're trapped and crowded, which is obviously an answer to the cramped spaces that they had on the riverfront at Joe Lewis Arena. And, of course, the bad smell they had down there, by the way. But uh, Little Caesars Arena is new. It's sparkling. It's nice. It's all sorts of high tech and has a, a strong attention to detail as well. The, uh, the food and beer... The prices were maybe a little bit more affordable than you might expect for a new arena. Maybe my expectations were, uh, you know, a little high as far as what I might expect from a 2017 built arena. But you know, beers, big beers are ten bucks. Uh, my friend got a taco platter for ten bucks, and I got a fancy grilled cheese with chicken and bacon on it for eight dollars. There's all sorts of pizza options. You got Kid Rock's restaurant that we stayed away from uh, there as well. And of course, you know, all sorts of, all the hot and ready that you could possibly want from Little Caesars Arena too. Founders Beer had a, the Grand Rapids Brewery had a stand of different options of their uh, beer there as well. So it's, it's everything you'd kind of want out of a pure Michigan arena. And like we've heard about, and we've talked a little bit about this podcast as well, the, the seating as you go up to the, the nosebleeds, the, the, the third, the second deck there. It's pretty steep, and that's what everyone has kind of talked about and the first thing that people have said to me when I've asked about their visits to the arena. But I didn't think it was maybe as intimidating a look downward from the nosebleeds as maybe I envisioned. I was, I'd was i been at the top row of Lucas Oil Stadium, the Colts Stadium in Indianapolis before, and I can tell you that was pretty disconcerting when you were looking down in that. That one was such a huge arena that those football arenas are. But it didn't have that same you know nauseating, really kind of feeling that I had back then when I went to uh, Little Caesars Arena, so that was a good thing. So you know, don't don't take people saying how steep it is as a uh, as something to be worried about, or if you got kids or something like that. It's not a feeling of unsafe, unsafety, or anything like that. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Uh, they said it was Ken Holland and some of the and Tom Wilson and some of the Red Wings people said the Illich people said that 
the arena was built and designed with the Montreal Canadiens Forum kind of in mind in terms of fans being kind of directly on top of the ice and the action and that it should be able to get loud in that regard when you have kind of a cramped feel to it as opposed to the old, I guess not the old, old, but the the most recent uh, you know, types of stadiums, think Comerica Park when I talk about that. You can, as we know, we can kind of see how the first deck of Comerica Park is known to be so wide and spread out that uh, it's got kind of a different feeling in terms of the openness of that outdoor complex that, than you'd have at the Little Caesars Arena. But to be loud in the arena, you'd actually have to have fans there. Detroit Basketball! Well, the good news is that Mason could probably be heard loud and clear really throughout downtown Detroit as he was obviously the star of the show on Monday night when I was there at the Pistons game against the Philadelphia 76ers. Sometimes it really kind of felt like he was the only one there. The uh, the crowd had a very palace in the last decade vibe to it during the loss on Monday night. After 20,000 plus were announced uh, for as far as fans attendance wise in last week's opening game at Little Caesars Arena against the Charlotte Hornets, the Pistons announced a crowd of about 13,000 for Monday's game against Joel Embiid and the 76ers, but I was there and it didn't even seem like nearly that much, really. And it wasn't because there were fans that were spending all their time in the restaurants and concourses. Of course, there were some throughout and we walked around during the middle quarters of the game quite a bit too, but not so many walking around the concourses and restaurants that to make a huge difference in terms of what it looked like at the at the uh, on the court and on the cameras and whatnot. Watching during Wednesday's opener, I wondered, seeing you know some of the pictures of the lower bowl, that if the top deck was maybe better attended than the lower bowl, because you know maybe fans didn't want to pay premium prices for tickets or found them on the aftermarkets or something like that. But I got to tell you, on Monday, that most sections throughout the bottom and the top, especially kind of the top, were maybe even a little bit less uh, sparsely attended. The most sections were somewhere between 40 and 60% full, which is really not good for game two with a kind of an exciting up-and-coming team in town. And then a 2 and one record coming into the game as well for the home team. There were a couple exceptions where it was even less than those 40 and 60% numbers, though, it seemed like, with one of the eyesores really sticking out. As you look as we look down from our kind of nosebleed seats, although we moved down to the lower bowl in the second half, there was a center court section opposite the player benches. So it's kind of as you're as you're watching on Fox Sports Detroit, it's you got the camera looking down at the court. It would be below that camera, so you can't see it as game action is going on. The, there's there's kind of a section right there. It's center court section that really catches the eye because there's it's it's pretty much deserted in the whole entire top half of that section. I mean, these are premium seats. You're talking about 12, about 12 rows of the top half of that section, maybe about 20 seats across, and in that whole area. So, again, you're talking about maybe, you know, hundreds and hundreds of seats there. There's like, there's like six fans total. And like I said, these are premium seats, and it's consistently throughout the game that there's nobody there. And, the, and like I said, these are great seats. That would be a great vantage point to catch the game and be able to see, you know, center court seats and all that. Really uh, would be better hockey seats, too. I've sat in seats like that before where it's kind of, um, you know, the top half of that center ice section. They're really good seats, and it'd be kind of the same thing for basketball as well, kind of a disappointing section to look at, and it's something to keep an eye on, and it was a really bad look, and it, like I said, it really kind of stood out like a sore thumb. And really, as things go on, 
There's going to be a lot of bad Eastern Conference teams visiting Detroit this year at Little Caesars Arena. You're going to catch some snow here coming up very soon, and you might even have another you know mediocre Pistons season that's that might that could end up being a little bit uninspiring as time goes on. You know, it's too early to tell right now, but you could see how things really aren't going to change in terms of anytime soon with the attendance numbers. So that's going to be what we're going to be dealing with here going forward, at least for the foreseeable short-term future. Yes, sir! Yes, sir, indeed. But what if you're if you're the Pistons right now, what do you do about it going forward? I'm sure the, the marketing and ticket people will tell you that they didn't have ample time to go sell the place. You know, you had the late start. I don't think the Pistons were officially going to move to Little Caesars Arena until January of last year, kind of moving forward. It's a, it's an unheardably short amount of time that they, they had to turn things around. So they the business people were probably rushing to make partnerships with some de- more Detroit businesses and maybe make deals with downtown-based companies and residents and, and more, you know, city of Detroit public outreach that maybe they'll have a whole year to put together going forward for next year, but maybe they didn't have the time to do everything they wanted going into this season. So that could be kind of a work in progress on the business side. But I've got kind of an idea that I'm stealing from the Chicago Bulls. I went to a bunch of their games last year at the United Center as I covered them for the Associated Press. And I think that the Bulls did a better job of incorporating the past into the current game atmosphere. You have to kind of look at what you have as an asset when you're marketing the team. And I think that the Pistons do a good job. They they recognize that moving to downtown Detroit and kind of uh, the middle of a little bit, like I said, a little bit of a renaissance for downtown Detroit. They've got, you know, local music acts that are doing videos and showing the city around and all that kind of stuff on the big, huge, uh, and really nice, center, you know, scoreboard, video board that they got in the arena there. And they do, and again, they do another another asset that they have is the, the current players themselves. But it's not as great of an asset as a lot of the, the players around the league, though. So, um the 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 current team that the Pistons have, like I said, it, it's just it's just not that inspiring of a group. And the minute before the tip off, they have a long video showing each and every player and who they are, and they might be introducing the players to some of these fans. Is really might be part of the reason for it. But right before tip off in Chicago, you know, they knew they had last year a pretty ordinary and not necessarily likable team with Jimmy Butler having a little bit of unrest and Dwayne Wade coming home not having much of an impact, Rajon Rondo getting into fights with teammates and stuff like that. So what they did is they just made a video of the past years. They went back to Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, some of Derrick Rose's best years that were a great beloved time for Bulls fans with a Chicago kid leading them to some of the ty- the heights of the NBA during that stretch. So they just put the dramatic music together. They showed Jordan holding up some of the championships. The, of course, Michael Jordan's got a catalog of dramatic shots. And they went you know, all the way back to some of the old school players as well, and they showed all of that. They didn't have you know montages of Miritich and Bobby Portis and and you know Tony Snell and some of the lean uh, groups of guys Denzel Valentine that they have right now. Whereas the Pistons are kind of you know pushing videos of John Luer and Anthony Tolliver at fans who don't even know who they are, and if they they do, you know they're not excited about this current group right now. I understand that you've to sell these guys and build the profile of some of these guys with the fans, but you've got you know, nonstop of footage and past and history with this team, especially with people my age that grew up watching Isaiah Thomas and Joe Dumars, and then were maybe in your more formative years 
watching Chauncey Billups and and Ben Wallace and those guys. So it's I think that they need to understand where their assets are and link themselves to the past of the Detroit Pistons a little bit more in terms of the game atmosphere and the game environment. You can take us down to memory lane because those are some good times and some great memories. Now, the former host of this podcast, Duncan Smith, um, who writes on for PistonPower.com, has been floating on a, a theory on Twitter and, and some of his writing the last couple of days that he doesn't think that the Pistons are a very beloved team at all. In fact, he thinks that the the fans don't like this team. The, the, and I noticed on Monday they're, they're quick to boo when things weren't going wrong. And it it's just maybe it is a bit of a problem with, with Andre Drummond being the fan, face of your franchise and the leader. Um, during his time, he's been accused of having, especially last year, you know, not kind of cruising through games and not giving complete effort all the time. Of course, all the missed free throws get old when it's your best player who's missing, you know, such a fundamental NBA skill that he's not been able to come close to master or even get competent at. And it's hard to love a big guy sometimes. We've seen that through from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar throughout the years. This is the guy who scored the most points in NBA history you know, they only now are building a statue of him in Los Angeles. And I think it's a little bit of revisionist history because that was Magic's team back then. That guy, Kareem, he was not beloved. And like I said, it's hard for us, you know, the common fan, to relate to the things that those seven-footers are doing out there. Of course, we're marveling when Andre Drummond blocks a shot into the 16th row, but we can't relate to the some of the good things he does because we can't go on a basketball court and dunk that easily or do a putback as well as he does. But we see some of the, you know, a big guy has some of the body struggles. His feet aren't moving as quick. You know, he just has clumsy fouls sometimes. He kind of just fell on Joel Embiid the other day when Embiid was on the ground and had the ball and there was a chance to either steal it or tie it up. And Drummond's momentum just kind of carried him to where he fouled him at the three-point line, just kind of dove right on him. And it was one of those things where it's like, man, that's a kind of a clumsy move to bail that player out and pile up your fouls as, you, as you're doing that. See, with the big guys, the things that they can't do are things that we'll never be able to do, whereas some of the things that they, they can't do are things that we maybe we can do. So, I mean, I wonder how many fans that were there on Monday night can shoot free throws better than Dre's, you know, 38% career clip. It puts unnecessary pressure on those guys because of their size. I had a, uh, one of my good friends in high school. We played on the high school basketball team with. He was a, an all, you know, a, a, a Division One basketball player. He was six foot ten. We'd have a game senior year, and we'd lose, and we'd go into the locker room the next day at the beginning of practice and go through the stats. And he would, you know, he had thirteen points and nine rebounds or something that game. And you're thinking in the back of your head, well, man, he's six foot ten. Why didn't he? Why didn't he do a little bit more? Why didn't he, he make things happen? Well, meanwhile, in that same game, I came off the bench, probably made, maybe played five minutes and had a couple turnovers, missed my one shot, a, a long three pointer, probably bricked it bad, and and maybe got the ball stolen from me and got three sixty dunked on like I did one time in high school basketball. Well, that didn't matter because I sucked, so who cares? But you know, why didn't that six ten kid? Why didn't he? He's going to Division One school. Why didn't he do more to help us win that game? So it's kind of the unnecessary and unfair burden that's placed on some of those guys. But the Pistons are one of the best overall franchises in the league, and they have to take advantage of that, have to build upon that history. We have a Hall of Fame and beloved lineage of players, and we have to do a better job of highlighting them 
than maybe the Eric Morlins of the world or the Langston Galloways of the world. You know, hopefully one day fans are attached to them like they got attached to some of the bench players from some of the great years that they had, the two championship eras that the Pistons had, but certainly they're not there yet. So maybe step back at the overall view of the Pistons organization, take an inventory of what you can do well and what fans do relate to and kind of build on that as you're marketing and and building excitement around the team. So just a quick thought I had of my two cents of what maybe this team could do going forward to help uh, a short-term fix and maybe get fans a little bit more excited about the team when they do get to the game, if they do get to the game. So anyway, that's all for today. Uh, We'll be have a full recap for Thursday's podcast of how things go against the Timberwolves on Wednesday night at home, and we'll look ahead to the West Coast swing over the weekend as well. So I want to thank everyone for joining me again on another episode of Lockdown Pistons. This is Matt Shook, your host, and we'll talk to you soon, everyone.